Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, as we continue on through the works of St. Paul, help us to be able to understand the significance, the meaning, and help us to be able to integrate that personally in our lives. Um, Help us to appreciate the scriptures more and more as we study, and also give us the heart of the early church to be able to discern and to put into practice uh, the word of God as it comes to us. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we're going to start off with Philippians, and actually I'm going to uh, pick up the pace a little bit. Hope you don't mind. So we're going to kind of go through more books uh, a little faster, and so make sure because of that, if there are any questions that really stand out, make sure that you ask them so that I can, um, instead of skimming over something I might assume you all know, just just let me know. So uh, we're continuing on through the epistles of St. Paul. Uh, Philippians is another one of the epistles that is categorized as a captivity epistle, meaning that it was written while St. Paul was in jail. And uh, it was written to a town of Philippi. Um, Philippi was named after Philip II. You might remember who that is, right? Alexander the Great's dad. So anyway, it was named after him. It was a, a fertile plain that was a little farther north of, it was kind of in the, uh, well, to the east of Macedonia. But the the thing about uh, Philippi is it was not an extremely rich city. It was more of what we would consider a working class city in its day. And it was, uh, because it was a fertile plain, there was a lot of farming and agriculture and some other uh, shipping and um, other types of industry that happened there. But it wasn't like, uh, Corinth, for example, it wasn't as cultured, it wasn't as developed, um, and it didn't have the wealth. And so anyway, this is the, um, the city that St. Paul's writing to, and you can see that as he's writing, he just has a lot of love and affection for the Philippians. And it really comes across in this letter. If you ever want to read a letter of St. Paul where you just feel good at the end of it for humanity and love of God and, and everything's wonderful and, and beautiful and graced, Philippians is a good one to go with. So when people are saying, I want to pray with Scripture, um, I'll offer different um, scriptural books. And Philippians is one that I'll normally uh, say, hey, why don't you uh, read and pray um, with Philippians? Because it's not so much the doctrinal content as it's the edifying of the people and encouraging them. And I think also St. Paul, because he's reflecting on his own imprisonment, it enables him to be able to, to think in more fond terms of the people that he really grew in into loving and, and establishing a great relationship with them. So anyway, the uh, the town of Philippi actually does not exist anymore. See, what happened is the Turks, um, when they, they uh, came into the area and overran uh, what was the Byzantine Empire at the time, they destroyed Philippi, and it never really has been rebuilt. There are still some ruins there, and you can see it on a map, but there's no um, continuing city like in some of the others, like Athens and Corinth. Um, Also, um, as I mentioned, that St. Paul was fond of Philippi, and several times, actually, and he mentions this in the letter, that they responded very favorably when he asked them for aid. And also, it was part of the campaign where he was he was trying to help out the Holy Land in, in Jerusalem and Israel because they were suffering from different famines and economic problems, and Philippi was very generous. So St. Paul recognized that this working-class city was being very generous and was also being very uh, accommodating to him and, and aided him and encouraged him and prayed for him. So he's, he's giving them a lot of uh, um, edifying words in the process there. Um, first of all, the letter is friendly, and you can tell even by the um, opening lines here is that 
he gives the thanksgiving and it says, I give thanks to my God at every remembrance of you, praying always with joy in my every prayer for all of you because of your partnership for the gospel from the first day until now. Well, anyway, you can see just by his opening line that it's much different than he was with the Galatians, right? There doesn't seem to be any huge controversy, no, um, no people who are working to disrupt uh, the progression of the gospel. And so, therefore, it, it seems that the atmosphere and the style of the letter are going to be a lot more favorable, kind, and edifying. Um, this is what I mentioned before, a captivity epistle. St. Paul was in jail. It traditionally is believed that it was written in Rome, but more than likely, it was written from Ephesus uh, between 56 and 57 A.D., and I say that because of the, the style of the language, the missionary journeys, it just tends to fit that time frame a little more. It's also theoretically possible that it was written, written in Caesarea, but uh, that would be a minor opinion on that. So traditionally, they say it was written in Rome. More than likely, it was written in Ephesus. It could have been written in Caesarea. And once again, we find ourselves not knowing exactly for sure, but if you're going to toss the dice then Ephesus would be the one that that most scholars tend to to lean toward. And then after that, probably Rome. But like a lot of things, we can't know for sure. All right, so chapter 1, we have that introduction. It's a loving prayer, and we have this thanksgiving. You all have a place in my heart. You can see that that he's overflowing um, with sentiment and with love from and for the Corinthians. He's writing from prison. And there's a, uh, a very telling line in here, which is chapter 1, verse 23. I am caught between the two. I long to depart from this life and be with Christ, for that is far better. Yet that I remain in the flesh is more necessary for your benefit. So here St. Paul recognizes that, you know, I think I'm actually, um, I'm totally fine if God takes me tomorrow that I could be in heaven because I want to be in heaven. But he recognizes that he's still being called to be on earth so that he can continue the work that God gave him. It's an interesting attitude because I think uh, most of us would probably not say, you know, I'd rather be in heaven right now. You know, we would rather say, I'd rather be in heaven when that time comes. You know, and we're people of faith, but it's, it's hard to have the attitude that, you know, I want to be in heaven now. But... I'll keep working for the Lord as long as he keeps me here. But uh, hopefully someday I'll get there. I'm not there yet. I don't know where you're at. But it's kind of like I would uh, love to be in heaven, uh, but there's always still a little fear because there's the unknown and the unexperience, um, the, the lack of experience. So that means that for right now, I'm okay where I'm at, God. But when I do go, make sure I go to heaven. Well, anyway, St. Paul kind of takes, I think, a very... Uh, a good spiritual approach to this, and really the approach that we should all be striving toward, that we want to be in our home, even in the present, but in the meantime, we have work to do. So it's a nice nice way to look at it. So he continues on saying, we need to hold fast to the battle and live the faith. And so what's the battle? Probably doesn't take much to figure that out this battle between good and evil, the battle between believers and non-believers, um, the battle between the spiritual world and, um, and also the, the material world, the, the battle between God's will being done and um, Satan trying to disrupt that. And St. Paul sees himself as one of those ambassadors that goes in to uh, try to encourage people to accept their role in, in fighting the good fight. He even uses some military terms, but we should understand that they're metaphors. Obviously, we're not supposed to be taking up a sword and running out and killing people for Christ. You know, that's not, um, that's not part of the plan. Um, but these terms give us the idea that there is a mission and a purpose and a greater good that is accomplished by us following the gospel, preaching the gospel, living the gospel, and being a part of the gospel. Our ability to be in Christ has greater ramifications than our own individual salvation. It actually participates in what Jesus did with his death and resurrection and how he wants all the world to be fully in God's kingdom with all the gracings and the blessings that come with that. So anyway, as you, as you read through and you start hearing some of that language, 
uh, just keep that in mind. It's it's used as as metaphor, but also it's it's trying to encourage the people to take seriously their calling and their um, participation in the gospel. So chapter two, it has the plea for unity and humility, and Christ, of course, is the model. So if we look at, for example, chapter two, verse six, we have this. Um, well, it's, it's a prayer, but it's also something that was more than likely a Christian hymn that was sung by the early church. And then St. Paul includes it in his letter. There are a few of those, actually, in Paul's letters, and even in, uh, you know, possibly um, like uh, Luke's gospel, where they have these little um, sections that are put in there. But the reason is, is because this would be something very familiar to the people. And so as they're reading St. Paul's letter they would get to a part where he would throw out a familiar song. It would be the same thing as us throwing out a familiar poem or lyrics to a song that we like. It, it adds to the, um, to the sentiment of the words and gives us a point of reference. So anyway, this in particular, this song, talks about Jesus who was so humble that he came down to earth and emptied himself in humility. And he shed his divinity... He didn't literally shed his divinity, but the point is is that by, by becoming human, he really did have to leave behind a lot of the power that he had as, as his divine side, as being God. And, you know, we oftentimes don't appreciate that for what it is, but it would be not even, but, you know, just to give an example, imagine if we tried to become, you know, a dog or something like that. And in order for us to be a dog, we'd have to we'd have to assume dogness, and we could no longer have our full humanness when it came to our capacity um, to, you know, rely on on a lot of the, um, you know, the sophisticated thought and everything that we'd have. We'd have to speak to dogs on their terms. Well, it would be quite a challenge. But in order for us to accept that, it would also be quite a, a humility for that to happen. Well, in the same way, Jesus, he's born as a baby, and as a baby, he depends on Mary and Joseph to feed him, to nurture him, to protect him, and to help him to grow up. Um, He has to learn the scriptures. It's not like he had a magic zap into his head, and all of a sudden he had all of the Bible uh, memorized. You know, he had to learn it because of his humanness. He had to slowly be instructed. Now, the difference is, though, he didn't have the... um, he didn't have the problems that we have when it comes to lack of wisdom and understanding because of um, sin of the, or the original sin, that he was able to grasp the reality of whatever it is that he was reading um, in, in a more profound and better way. And also, if you consider it like this, he was in communion with the Father, and therefore, um, through his prayer, he was able to receive more instruction and uh, more wisdom than any of us would be able to do through our prayer because there's a different connection. Anyway, some of this is philosophy, but the point is with St. Paul is that he's talking about Jesus saying, do you realize how he humbled himself and to what degree God becoming man is such a, a great humbling affair that we really should glorify God in his humility and not only that, imitate that example. All right, so I'm going to read this real quick. So think about it in this Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, becoming, coming in human likeness, and found human in appearance. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. All right, so not only did God become human, but he also subjected himself to death from humans. Not only death from humans, but in the most humiliating way possible. On a cross. But because of this, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bend, those in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So after his death, of course, since he was he so um, emptied himself and humbled himself, God raised him to his full glory. You know, God the Father, of course. But um, therefore, this therefore here is something that 
we're supposed to understand that Jesus humbled himself through his death, but also through his resurrection, he is fully restored to his greatness. And so that that um, song just spells that out a little bit. By the way, this heaven on earth and under the earth, you might be thinking, what does that all mean? Well, in the ancient uh, Jewish mentality, they saw this, what they called Sheol or Hades, as this shadowy underworld that existed where the dead went until the Messiah would release them. And so that under the earth was referring to that. It wasn't specifically referring to hell. <laughs> so um, just important to keep that in mind. But anyway, that, that idea of self-emptying of Christ and the highest glorification possible, which is divinity, right? You know, so once again, St. Paul is speaking about the humility of Christ and then working straight out to his divinity, saying there is nothing and no one will ever be glorified more than he is because um, his resurrection and his divinity and his greatness is, is totally um, reassumed once again. Anyway, that's just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a song. So then after that, he talks about our work toward salvation. And he uses this idea of working towards salvation with fear and trembling. You figure, well, fear and trembling, what does that mean? We're supposed to be scared, afraid, and, well, other parts of the gospel say that we're not supposed to be afraid, we're not supposed to be scared, but there is this um, fear of the Lord which just accepts our place, that before our God, we really are human beings. We're, we are not God. Um, we should recognize with um, awe and wonder his greatness and accept our legitimate role in, you know, in the presence of him. It also means that we can never own or make ourselves saved. We can't save ourselves. We depend on God for salvation. Therefore, there's this natural understanding that we depend on him for everything, including our salvation. And if we understand our place, we can still glorify God. We can still see ourselves as good. Um, we're still the loving human beings he made us to be, but it keeps us from getting cocky or prideful as if somehow we don't need God or we can effect our own salvation. Does that make sense? So that's why he uses that, that type of language. But he also uses the striving metaphor. And he, he does that several times, such as the marathon runner, um, you know, trying, to, trying his best as a trained athlete to win the prize of, a, of an olive branch. And he's using it here as a sign of, of, of obedience and pursuing the ideal, even though you may never reach it, that it's always sought after. The ideal is always in front of us, and, and we work toward that salvation, doing our part. So we just keep at it. All right, chapter 3, here's where he gets just a little testy, all right, because, you know, there is a... Uh, a little bit of, you know, when I said it's like primarily the Philippians didn't have the same problems that the Corinthians did. Um, but there were, there were still some, some factions of the church, just like in any church, I guess. So, and I think the other thing he was concerned about is that people could be coming from outside of the city and saying, hey, we, we're part of the, uh, the greater church, and, and here's the gospel, and, and y'all need to be circumcised. You know, and so he was trying to protect them from that. So you can even see it in chapter 3, verse 2. It was beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. So what's he talking about? No. <laughs> He's talking about the same people that we were referring to in Galatians, right? Those, yeah, the ones that he's upset with, and it seems perpetually, because they're saying that in order for the the Christian converts to be good Christian converts, they have to be circumcised and follow the Jewish law. And so St. Paul, once again, is getting into that, saying, beware of them, beware of the mutilation, mutilation, circumcision. You know, so he's talking about that because circumcision is the sign of the law. And so that's why he refers to it there. Yeah, yeah, we, we think of dogs as cute, but back then that was a bit of an insult. Yeah, so I think he's, he's still a little upset. <laughs> but anyway, it's it's through warning. For we are the circumcision, we who worship through the Spirit of God, who boast in Christ Jesus and do not put our confidence in the flesh. You know, we don't put our confidence in following the law. We depend on God for our salvation. And so we are the circumcision, meaning, you know, 
by faith, we are brought into the children of God. We're part of that family of God. We don't need to depend on an external sign like circumcision or following the law in order for us to be children of God. Before Jesus, though, you did. You know, and that's the difference. People who were Jews needed to follow the law in order to be Jews. And if you were Jew, you were part of the chosen people. And that came about primarily through circumcision and then following the different rituals and sacrifices and and uh, prescriptions of the law. So here's St. Paul saying, we are included as the people of God through faith, not through circumcision. So we are that circumcision. Basically, we are the ones who are um, the sign of, of being children of God. And so that's his... You know, part. And then, then he goes on with the uh, a continuation there. He, he starts talking about how he has his credentials. Okay, once again, I'm, we had something similar. Do you remember this with, with Ephesians and Galatians where he's talking about his credentials? Well, we have the same thing. If anyone else thinks he can be confident in the flesh, all the more can I. Circumcised on the eighth day of the race of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of Hebrew parentage, in observance of the law, a Pharisee, in zeal I persecuted the church, in righteousness based on the law I was blameless. So he's saying, I followed the law perfectly. Being of the tribe of Benjamin, by the way, that's where the first king of Israel, Saul, was from. So there was a certain sort of um, pride and identity and even in that. So anyway, St. Paul was, was talking about that as saying, I say this not as an outsider, but I say this as someone who knows what the law is all about. All right, towards the end, um, he's also going to talk about, um, let me just read this, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 16, because this is part of that that racing um, image. It is not that I have already taken hold of or have already attained perfect maturity, but I continue my pursuit in the hope that I may possess it, since I have indeed been taken possession of by Christ. Brothers, for my part, do not consider myself to have been taken possession. Just one thing, forgetting what lies behind, but straining forward to what lies ahead. I I continue my pursuit toward the goal, the prize of God's upward calling in Jesus Christ. Okay, so you see that image once again, like you have the prize in front of you and you're constantly striving toward it. So it kind of fits that, that image. All right, and then the last, of course, we just have some... Live in concord, uh, in love, um, joy and peace, rejoice. He, he even has a, a, a nice little phrase that works its way onto a lot of holy cards and, and statues and, and uh, nice little uh, Christian sayings. And that's just the one that, that uh, chapter 4, verse 13, you've probably heard this one before. Okay. I have strength for everything through him who empowers me or him who, th- who strengthens me. So the idea is like he has the strength that he needs. He can do all things in Christ because Christ gives him the strength. So whether he's in jail, whether he's preaching the gospel, whether he's stoned and left it for dead outside the city, or whether he's sharing in, in the love of the, of the people, it doesn't matter because he can do all things through Christ. It's through um, God's grace and through the spirit that he, he continues to move on because he's strengthened and he's given the ability to live the faith. So once again, he's wanting the Philippians to take that into heart as well, that they also can do all things in Christ. And then he basically says goodbye. <laughs> so anyway, so that's Philippians. Like I said, if you want to read a, a nice uh, loving gospel of Paul, I mean, that one works really well. Okay, so now we'll go to Colossians. So Colossians uh, was written, there's once again a city. It, it's, well, actually it's an area. It's more inland in present-day Turkey. And let's see, Colossae was more inland. Paul never actually went there, which is kind of interesting. So he's writing to a region in, in present-day Turkey, back then it was called Asia Minor, or part of Greece, it was part of the Greek culture. And he never went there, but Philemon did. And he's, he's trying to encourage and to uh, build up the faith in the area. 
uh, through letters. Yeah, this is also, yeah, he's in prison, and this is um, one of the captivity epistles, and he probably is in Rome here, but some say Ephesus or Caesarea. Once again, it's like one of the one of the mysteries is like, which captivity are we talking about? We know he's in jail. He says we're in jail. They, they, try, to, they try to determine which jail he might be in by... The, uh, the style of the letter and trying to match it up with his different missionary journeys that he had um, that are recorded in Acts. So we have, on one hand, one reference, Acts of the Apostles, that kind of spells out where, where Paul went. Then they try to figure out, well, what kind of theology is being used here? How developed is the theology? Because if it's very developed, then it's probably a later um, captivity. But if it's, it's kind of his earlier preaching, then they assume that it would be his early, earlier gelling. So that's why they're saying Ephesus, you know, but it could be Rome. So anyway, but in this case, some say Ephesus, some say Caesarea, some say Rome. Um, the idea is, I think they were saying that, that it was probably between 61 and 63 AD, which is later than the, the Philippians. So if that, if that logic follows out, then this would be written from Rome rather than Ephesus. All right. But once again, we don't know for sure. We just have to kind of take a, a guess at that by the style and the writing and the development of the theology because he never actually says. So traditionally, this letter was written by St. Paul. There is some dispute about that, but not as much as some other letters. So, so most would say St. Paul wrote this letter, and it wasn't something that was written by a later scribe or, or disciple of him. And it begins with the typical Pauline style of a thanksgiving and a prayer followed by the pur- purpose of the letter. And the purpose, you can see on chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. Giving thanks to the Father has made you fit to the universal light. Okay, so he delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so very uh, um, essential one-liner type gospel thing that, you know, we've been delivered from our sins and brought into the fullness of Christ, and therefore um, we are in his kingdom and we have a share in that redemption. All right, your very, very core boss, uh, basic gospel message. So later on, chapter 15, 15 through 20, he's got another... Another one of these, um, well, similar to the, I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called, because we actually pray these in the office, and they, yeah, I just went blank. Oh, well, it happens. But it's very similar to, like, what we just saw in Philippians. So this is a bit more of a poem, and it probably was an earlier, early Christian hymn as well. It would have been known by the Colossians because he's quoting it like he would a poem or, or a, a song. But once again, this is following that same theme. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him were created all things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All right, you can see the idea here, right? It's the glorification of Jesus in his divinity. At the same time, that image of the invisible God shows that even when um, Jesus was a human being, that he still um, was in the image of the invisible God, even though he was visible. Some people talk about it like two sides of the same coin, and but those are metaphors, so you get lost. Or what do they say? Metaphors limp. So... So that's why St. Paul goes on with the description here. It, like it is very creed-like yeah. because the early church needed to have these different formulas to teach the faith. They did it in, in music. They did it in, in creeds, um, recited, recited creeds. Like the Apostles' Creed, for example, was a baptismal creed. People would say that before they were baptized so that they would profess their faith in the unity of the church that the church believed. So it was a baptismal formula. Yeah, that was the beginning of creeds. 
So they, they can't really date the Apostles' Creed. They know that it came later than about 100 A.D., but they don't know when. But the Apostles probably didn't write the Apostles' Creed. Anyway. But, the yeah, the tradition and where it came from was obviously apostolic. But anyway, we're off track. All right, so here we are in Colossians again. So it's another one of those hymns that works its way into Scripture because St. Paul's using it um, to, to help teach and to instruct the people. All right, heavenly powers. Um, some people believe that there were powers that controlled the heaven and therefore threatened the supreme power of Jesus. And that sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? But um, the thing is, when he's talking about um, being above all, he's talking about above, you know, not only this earthly world, but he's above all even spiritual. It, like, for example, if people think that there are like little ghosts and stuff that control everything, well, St. Paul's saying even if there were, and, he's, and there's not, but he's saying even if there were, you know, Jesus would still be above all them. You know, so he's using this to, you know, to help um, combat that false teaching of those heavenly powers. So all things are subordinate to Jesus and Christians, and they are set free from any principle or ineffective observances or superstitions that might come about. Okay, so in, in this time, you've got a lot of philosophies that were Greek in nature that that talked about the way things are based on either emanations or based on spiritual powers or based on um, numerology or some thought astrology. And St. Paul is saying that Jesus is higher than any of those things. Well, one good example of that in today's world is people who would say, for example, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to use astrology just in case. Well, St. Paul would be saying, don't do that because Jesus is above all things. You know, you're wasting your time on these superstitions because they can't do anything. Go to the go to the big man. You know, go to the big guns. Go to the person who actually can hear your prayer and do something. Don't waste your time on this, and don't worry and fear about all these different philosophies and things that are that that in no way could ever jeopardize the power of Jesus and His dominion. Makes sense, right? Yet at the same time, there are a lot of Catholics that um, believe in reincarnation and um, they, they do superstitious things and um, they, might, they might have a problem praying in a Christian way or they might include other ways just to be safe. You know? and St. Paul is just basically saying, don't waste your time with that stuff. Go to the source. You know? but it, so it's, nothing's new. Anyway, he also talks in verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I am a minister in accordance with God's stewardship given to me to bring completion for you, the word of God. The mystery hidden from ages, from generations past. Okay, so what does that mean when St. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of the body of the church? What could possibly be lacking from Jesus' death on the cross? Well, in the present, St. Paul recognizes that his suffering is a participation in the sufferings of Christ. So it's a continuation. So the, the continuation of Jesus' cross is lived out in the sufferings and persecutions of the church. Because the church is the body of Christ, right? So in a very real way, Jesus died only once. He died, he rose from the dead, and that was you know, the end of the story. Sin, death was conquered for all time. But that suffering in Christ continues on through the church until Jesus comes again. So St. Paul is just drawing a logical conclusion and connection that his suffering is in connection with Christ's own suffering. So his participation in the suffering of Christ is actually something that is the body of Christ in the church um, playing out the effects of the crucifixion in knowledge that the resurrection will follow. Have you ever heard that, like, offered up? Take up your cross. 
Yeah, if you don't if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Um, all these things that that Jesus said actually. Well, Jesus didn't quite say offered up. That's kind of a Catholic thing for the poor suffering souls of purgatory. But the idea there is that whatever suffering we have, there is redemptive value to suffering. And we as Americans have a hard time with that. How could there be redemptive value in suffering? You know, when you see a, a, a small child suffering, how can you say that somehow that can glorify God? Well, it doesn't in what's happening, but it, it is reflective of the cross and the suffering of Christ. And one day, the Lord will will change that in a way that will um, glorify it. Not the suffering itself, but just as the resurrection, you know, glorified Christ, well, in a similar way, um, one day, you know, that that anything that is suffered, if it is in Christ, will be something that brings about a redemption of the human race, just as Jesus' cross did. Does that make sense? It does? Because it's kind of a hard thing to grasp. It is. Think about that one. How is it, for example, if I am suffering for Christ, that that can help bring about the redemption, not only of me, but of others? Because it's symbolic of the, uh, the death of Jesus in the cross that brought, a, brought about the redemption of others. Well, if the church is the body of Christ and I'm suffering as a member, then I am assuming that participation in the cross, and therefore there is also the redemptive suffering that leads to the resurrection. And redemption. So anyway, think about that one. It does make sense, kind of, but it's one of those things that you, you have to kind of think about and pray about. All right, where am I? <laughs> Suffering has purpose. Okay, so they go to chapter 2. Um, he's talking again about the false teachers. Now, in, in Colossians, though, it's, it's slightly different than his prior false teachers based only on on the law. You know, and this one is similar, but it, it includes also a lot of the philosophical um, temptations that people are going to hear and respond to. So first of all, he says to hold fast to what you have received. So something very important, actually, St. Paul uses it over and over, is the idea that we have received the gospel. We have not manufactured the gospel. We have not produced the gospel. We have not thought up the gospel and made it what we want it to be. It's something that Jesus taught the disciples and the Holy Spirit and St. Paul as well as anyone in the church receives the gospel. If the gospel is received, that means we should have the right attitude of understanding that we humbly receive the gospel and we should receive it in its entirety. Now, there may be some discussion about, you know, you know how far do you take that, you know, when, it, when it's like, little incidental things, but the, the fullness of the gospel is something that is received. You know, a lot of times people will say things like, well, you know, people made up God. People made up the faith. And, you know, this idea that the faith is something that, that we manufacture. But um, technically, the faith is something we receive. So, therefore, St. Paul says that we need to hold fast to what we have received. So, if I receive the faith and the faith tells me that Jesus died and rose from the dead, and that's a fact. And if my faith tells me that if I am in Christ, then I too can die and rise from the dead, um, that I have salvation through faith, then I don't want to go off in the wrong direction and say I affect my own salvation because then I'm abandoning what I have received. All right, so we, we are in a revealed religion. God speaks to us. We accept it. It's not like we're trying to figure out God, so therefore we produce our faith. It's just a difference in, in uh, mindset. Philosophers of the day around St. Paul, they thought that God was unknowable, so they had to think their way to understanding who and what God was all about. So it was all open to opinion. So St. Paul's saying, we're the opposite. We receive this from God himself, therefore um, we don't have to try to rethink it all. Okay, so therefore, don't fall for any of the trendy, philosophical, or other lures that might come your way. Like, here's a new teaching. Here's a new philosophy. If you look at human history, you'll notice there's always going to be a new philosophy, a, a new style, a new fad. I mean, think about in our own lifetimes, for example, how many times people have chased after something that seems so trendy and new, 
And then 10 years later, you're like, boy, that was dumb. You know? Yeah. The world is ending in October now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, there's there's always going to be something that's going to try to take us away from what is revealed. And St. Paul's telling his people back then, just hold fast and don't fall for it. So Jesus' body and divinity is fullness, and his body and his divinity is, is the fullness of both realms, heaven and earth. And so, so there was this idea in that age where they were thinking that um, philosophy was saying that, you know, the body can't rise from the dead. So, you know, what's, what's this Christian, you know, talking about this body and divinity thing? Well, the idea here is that Jesus it, it supersedes all that. Um, even Old Testament, Old, Old Testament dietary law and festivals are subservient to Christ. So you'll see in here where he's talking about, um, you guys are following all these rituals and feasts, and you know there's there's nothing wrong with ritual, uh, rituals and feasts and things like that, but we should keep them in context and say that that those are not above what Jesus did. So at the time there were people who were being tempted to follow the law but they were also tempted to follow all the feasts of, of the old law as if that was part of their salvation rather than finding their salvation in Christ. And then if they were going to follow any feast, then it would be in connection with that. You see the difference? Because sometimes people will quote that and they'll say, look, you Catholics follow feasts. St. Paul says we shouldn't do that. Well, once again, you've got to keep it in the context of what he was writing about. Okay, so... So there's this moral law that's part of the freedom. Let's see if I can find this. So you have this mystical death and resurrection. Slaves and masters. Okay, so the moral law, he, he, he has to talk a little bit about that as well. Let no one then pass judgment on you in matters of food and drink with regard to the festival, the new moon, or the Sabbath. Okay, remember the, you know, following the festivals. These are shadows of things to come. The reality belongs to Christ. Okay, so shadows of things to come means that they were not fulfilled in themselves, but they point to the greater fulfillment, which is Jesus. You know, so all those Old Testament feasts and rituals and, and uh, celebrations point to the Messiah and point to Christ. And so if you died with Christ to the elemental powers of the world, why do you submit regulations as if you were still living in the world. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are things destined to perish with use in accord with human precepts and teachings. While they have a semblance of wisdom and rigor of devotion and self-abasement and severity to the body, they are of no value against gratification of the, feth, of the flesh. So the idea there is just to keep everything in context once again. Don't, you know, don't worry so much about all that other stuff. Keep it all subservient to Christ and his power. All right. So at the end of this, through chapter 4, we just have his usual um, talking about um, just messages and his co-workers. And um, from chapter 4, verse 7 on, it's just talking about um, just tying up the loose ends and, and relaying messages. Um, he also has the, the moral in chapter 4, verse 5, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech, speech always be gracious, censored with salt, so that you know how you should respond to each one. So once again, he's saying, just be smart about how you present yourselves because you do affect um, those who have not come to the fullness of revelation yet. So therefore, being kind and gracious and inviting is something that is, is kind of part of the, the cycle of being a, a good Christian. So anyway... So there's Colossians. Colossians deals a, a little more with some of the philosophical challenges that the early church was encountering in the Greek-speaking world in central um, present-day Turkey. But St. Paul's basic message was that Christ is above and beyond anything and all things. Therefore, that's where our primary focus should be. Okay, so I think we can get through First and Second Thessalonians, or at least make it a good stab at it, so I'm going to go for it.
Okay, so 1 Thessalonians was written around 50 to 51 AD. It was written in the wintertime, and it was the first um, and earliest Old te- or New Testament work. So this was, a, this was the first letter of St. Paul that made its way into the Scriptures. It also predates the Gospels. Right, so it was written during part of St. Paul's second missionary journey, which was in Acts of the Apostles, um, chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. It talks about that description. It was probably written in Athens during the second missionary journey. The purpose was, um, what happens to those who have died because Jesus hasn't come yet? So here's the question. Okay, we're all Christian. We're all waiting for Jesus to come back real soon. We don't know when that real soon is, but we all assume that it's going to be like the next 15 minutes or so. Anyway, they thought it was going to be very soon. So all of a sudden, it's not as soon as I think it's going to be. And all of a sudden, members of my family start dying. Are they still going to be saved when Jesus comes again, or is it too late because they already died? So people were, were thinking about this. What happens to the people who have died? You know, how does, how does all that work? And so St. Paul, what he's basically saying is, don't worry about it. Whether people are dead or alive when Jesus comes back, all the dead and the alive will rise with Christ when he comes again. So that's his basic answer to that makes sense to us because we're used to it. But um, if you think about it, if, we, if Jesus were alive, he were living, and then he died, he rose from the dead, sends the Holy Spirit and says, I will come back soon. We would assume, you know, and then, then we're going to have the resurrection of the body and the fullness of the promise and the new heavens and the new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. Yet we assume it's going to happen so soon that, well, wait, what happens when people start dying before this happens? You know, are they going to have the resurrected body just like Jesus had? Well, anyway, St. Paul just basically is trying to alleviate their fears. So, no, purgatory is totally different. So, anyway, I, yeah, I, can't. <laughs> I can't get into it. We don't have time. So, but, yeah, the idea here is you have the dead, and then what happens to the dead when Jesus comes back? And so he somewhat answers that in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Um, but he also addresses it in different ways. But I'm going to read this real quick since this is the, kind of the essential part. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that those who have fallen asleep, so that you may not grieve like the rest who have no hope. So in other words, don't grieve so much to those who have died before us as if they somehow aren't being saved. For if we believe that Christ Jesus died and rose so too will God, through Jesus, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Indeed, we tell you this on the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will surely not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, with with a word of command, with the voice of an archangel, that's Michael, by the way, um, and with the trumpet of God, will come down from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first, And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore console one another with these words. Okay, so let me give you a a regional and a cultural um, explanation for this. I'm a king in a walled city. I go out and I meet the enemy. We conquer, we win, we win the battle, we win the war. As a king, coming back into the city, do the people stay in the city? No. They all, part of the celebration is they come out of the city and greet the king on the way in. This was a very common understanding of how it works. A king goes into battle, and as the king's coming back in his victory, the, the crowds would go out and meet him halfway on the way back in celebration and joy and sing songs. And anyways, kind of part of the cycle. Well, Jesus is the great king. In the same way, when he comes back in his glory, then his city, city of God, us, his kingdom, will go in, you know, and meet him and party, you know, as he's coming. You know, that we're going to be happy about this. So, symbolically, since Jesus is in heaven, he's going to come down from the sky, right? It wouldn't sound right if he's like Jesus had to crawl out of the sea. 
So they're using imagery that people can understand. So if Jesus is coming down from the sky, we will be so happy and great. Um, we're going to go out and we're going to party and we're going to meet him in the sky on the way down, right? You see the, you see the symbolism here? This is one um, part of scripture that people who believe in the rapture take. They say, well, it says right here, you know, that we're going to meet him in the sky, right? They're being overly literal. You know, it doesn't literally mean that we're going to go flying into heaven. When Jesus comes, he's going to create this new heaven and this new earth. The, the dead will rise. We will rise. We'll all be together in Christ. There will be the new heavens, the new earth. All sin and death will be done away with. There will be this renewal of creation. And, uh, you know, this is what's going to be happening. It's not like we're going to go flying off into the clouds and then disappear with Jesus. You know, this is the, the fulfillment of the promise of the Messiah coming. So that's just a, an image that St. Paul knew that the Thessalonians would understand. So does, does that make sense? So, so anyway, that, there's your little rapture thing. But that's why Catholics don't really, you know, believe in the rapture. And the rapture is actually, as I mentioned before class, it's a, it's a new thing. It was from the 1850s by a guy named Miller. Um, if you do a little search on the Internet and Google it, then you'll find um, the information on that. It'll kind of explain where it all came from, how they figured out this post-tribulation, you know, and pre-tribulation and all these different theories um, come from taking bits of Scripture like this and really either taking them out of context or being overly literal with them. So what was Paul trying to address? You guys, whether we're dead or alive, we're in Christ. When he comes back again, we'll be happy. We'll be celebrating. Everything will be wonderful. So don't panic. Don't worry. It's a very simple message, really. So anyway, he starts out. He's using Jewish terms, military and traditional imagery, and he's implying the immediacy of Jesus' return but it's not necessarily going to be as immediate as we think it might be. So he's saying, like, soon, 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 but we don't know when. You know, kind of like what Jesus was saying, right? You do not know the day of the hour I'm coming back soon. Well, how long is soon for God? Well, it's at least 2,000 years, we know that. So anyway, there's always a possibility that someone who guesses the second coming of Christ is going to get it right, because someday he will come back. But it's not for us to know, and we're wasting our time if we do. So he starts off talking about being thankful for the success of the gospel. He gives some personal news, chapters 2 and parts of 3. And then he gives instructions on Christian living. So we're supposed to be holy, especially in our body. Um, We're supposed to be loving one another in that brotherly love, the filio kind of love. Um, Also, he's being very uh, careful to say that we have to be attentive to our own business. We need to earn a living and gain respect of outsiders and be self-sufficient. Why do you think he's saying that? Because people thought Jesus was coming back, so why bother, right? It's like, why get a job? Why work? Why be self-sufficient? I'll just kind of, you know, mooch off the church, and Jesus is coming back in another day or two anyway. So St. Paul's basically saying, get on with your lives and be a good example for others so that they can come to Christ. Be self-sufficient so you're not mooching on the, the charity of the church. So anyway, he's, he's really trying to encourage people to, uh, to put their lives in order and, and to work. He even actually, in, in some spots, talks about if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. You know, but that's coming a little later. All right, so then he starts talking about the second coming of Christ. And he says that, we have hope for those who have died, as all believers should, right? Like whenever we have a funeral, we talk about the hope of the resurrection because it hasn't been fully realized in us, and until we experience it, it's hope. When it's made actual, then it's reality. But because we're Christians, we should believe in that. When Jesus comes, he will bring the saints with him, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet, and all will begin All will rise, beginning with the dead, and then we also will meet the Lord. So therefore, what's his point in this? Be alert, be awake, just as Jesus used to say. Be ready, because you do not know the day or the hour. Then he goes into uh, some more moral teaching. Be considerate to leaders, be at peace, admonish one another, encourage one another, support one another, be patient. Uh, Don't return evil for evil. Seek what is good and what is best for others, what's in their best interest. Be joyful, pray, give thanks, do not stifle the spirit, test and hold on to what is good. 
the the very end of that is uh, that you know, that chapter is a very good um, description of the attitude we should have as Christians. So you know, he doesn't say gossip and hold revenge and you know all the stuff we know is wrong, but we so easily overlook. You know, he's saying that this is this is really essential to the gospel. Okay, Second Thessalonians. It's a continuation, really, of First Thessalonians. He's just clarifying a few issues. As First Thessalonians was written in winter between 50 and 51 A.D., somewhere in there. Um, this was written a few months later, so probably 51 A.D., and you could think springtime or something like that. Some say it was written later, but most don't think so. All right. some, some put it as late as 80 A.D. and say it was a, a rehash that someone else did in St. Paul's name. But, I don't know, that's kind of a minor uh, minor position. So he starts, actually, with, once again, the brief description of judgment. That's chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. This is very brief, by the way. In blazing fire, inflicting punishment on those who do not acknowledge God and on those who do not obey the gospel... Um, the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal sin, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of the power, when he comes to be glorified among his holy ones and to be marveled on that day among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So anyway, he's saying there will be a judgment when Jesus comes again. We refer to that as the general judgment. So when we die, for example, that is the particular judgment. We are judged as individuals, but when Jesus comes, he will judge all things and everybody, and that's the general judgment, because after he comes again, there's going to be, whether everyone's alive or dead, they're all going to be judged as a whole. Does that make sense? So it's like, even if we die today, we'll have our individual judgment, but one day when Jesus comes back and there's this new heavens and new earth, there's going to be what we call a general judgment, where everyone alive and everyone who is dead, basically they have uh, the fullness of the promise fulfilled. Because, like, let's say we're in heaven. We still don't have our resurrected bodies yet. That's still yet to come. So in the fullness of time, with this new heavens and the new earth, then we'll have the fullness of the promise accomplished. Anyway, you can think about that for a while, too. That whole resurrection of the body thing, it confuses people. Um, When we die, we're going to be in heaven. We're in heaven. Everything's great and wonderful, but we still don't have our resurrected bodies yet. After Jesus comes again, that's the end of the story. Everyone will get the resurrected bodies. We'll be like Christ. Now, then you have to think, okay, what's a resurrected body? Well, it's, remember, it's a spiritual body. It's not a material one like we have here. It won't be confined by space and time and dimension. So anyway, go ahead and think about spiritual bodies. But we do get one because Jesus said we do, and the church has always said that. I see you thinking, good. <laughs> so so anyway, he's talking about the instructions on the day of the Lord and on prayer. Um, look at chapter 2, verses 2. 2, 2. We ask the brothers with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling with him, do not be shaken out of your mind suddenly or be alarmed either by a spirit or an oral statement, or by a letter allegedly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is at hand. Let no one deceive you in any way, for unless the apostasy comes first and the lawless one is revealed, the one doomed to perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above the so-called, every so-called God, an object of worship, so to seat himself in the temple of God, claiming that he is God. Okay, that refers back to Daniel. Now, what St. Paul's talking about here is the Antichrist, and he's saying that the Antichrist has to come first. There has to be, there's, there's a certain sort of uh, a progression that happens here. So first of all, he's saying don't listen to people that says the end of the world's coming on a specific day, especially if they say it's coming from us. And he's saying that, that that's, you know, where does he say that? So don't be shaken out of your minds or alarmed by any oral statement, or by any letter allegedly from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is at hand. So he's basically saying, don't get all caught up in the hype. 
It's not what we received. So after this, he talks about some of the steps that will happen. There seems to be that there's going to be some apostasy, all right, because he's talking about a revolt, turning away and turning against God. And it seems that St. Paul's talking about it in a collective sense, and he's also talking about it as something about believers who are denying and abandoning their faith, more so than unbelievers who are persecuting the faith. Like if you're reading the way that he's writing, he's saying that has to come first. So there has to be a falling away of believers, a general apostasy. And then after that, there will be a wicked one, a lost one, an enemy. That's referring to Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. It's the image of the Antichrist. So when he talks about the person in the temple taking his throne there as if he's God or a God, you know, that, that's symbolic also of the prediction of the Antichrist. In, in Daniel's time, it was referring to the desecration of the temple and putting Jupiter in there. But in this case, it's referring to the Antichrist who will come um, before Jesus does. And so this day has been held back. So St. Paul's saying that, okay, you know, this is the, this, these are the steps that will happen when this happens. There will be this falling away, there will be this Antichrist, and then Christ will come. But that day has been postponed, and that time has been held back. And there are a few reasons. One is for the sake of our salvation. We today, because that has been held back, are, we're born and we have, you know, possibility of entering into salvation. The other reason is, is there's something um, literally holding that back. Um, some people say it's the kingdom of God. Some say it's the church. If you think about it, it's all kind of saying the same thing. That believers are the ones who are holding back the the beginning of the falling away and then, you know, the coming of the Antichrist. Because if the believers are not falling away, then they're believers. But when the believers start falling away, that starts that chain of events that will be the apostasy that was predicted. And then after the apostasy comes uh, the coming of the Antichrist who deceives and deludes people. So as a believer, you have to fall away and then you have to be dumb enough to believe in Antichrist. And so until that happens, there can't, there can't be the second coming of Christ because, you know, those steps haven't taken place that were predicted. So St. Paul is just kind of um, talking about this. So anyway, it prevents the manifestation of the enemy who must precede Jesus' return. This Antichrist will have certain superhuman skills. He'll be very deceptive. He will be able to do tricks and magic like a human being would, but he won't have divine skills. You know, only Jesus has divine skills. So there's, there's the contrast between deception and the real power of God. Does that make sense? All right. So if you're ever wondering how it's going to happen, that's the, the brief description. There's going to be a falling away which of faith, people denying their faith and falling away from their faith in huge numbers. Then after that, there's going to be the gullible um, crowd that follows after any sort of movement or any sort of uh, philosophy or theology or religion or whatever else. And then after that, because people are so gullible, the Antichrist comes in as an agent, not Satan himself, but as an agent of, of Satan who um, comes about and, and deceives and deludes people and continues that that process of trying to pull people away from being uh, followers of Christ. And in the end, you know, Christians prevail, Jesus comes back, there's the new heavens and the new earth, and blah, 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 blah. So anyway, that's all we know for sure. So the day and the hour, we do not know. So anyway. So any questions about that? Is That's a fun thing to leave the, uh, the Bible study on and go home to, right? <laughs> but that does make sense, I hope. You know, I think what happens is a lot of times people will they'll try to pull isolated individual like um, verses out of the scripture and then try to say, look, Jesus is coming back 2012. And there's abs- I can say there's absolutely nothing in scripture that gives a date or a time or an hour or a month or a year. I've even heard someone say, well, Jesus said we can't know the day or the hour, but we can't know the month and the year. 
I mean, that's ridiculous. It's like Jesus specifically said we cannot and will not know. So when we have false prophets say that someone's coming, Jesus is coming on last Saturday, it's like we all knew that wasn't the case. But once again, the only reason why it was ever mentioned is because it makes Christians look stupid, and of course the press loves that. So that's my take. (laughs) Okay, so next week I won't be here, um, Memorial Day. And then the week after that, I'm going to do a visit to a sick family member. And so it'll probably be after that before we have our next class. Probably. So anyway, I'll put it in the bulletin, so check the bulletin. We'll go from there. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the Scripture. May God bless you.